Season 2 of IAP Radio. IAP stands for In A Pickle. This is the show that's dedicated to the less glamorous side of baseball. And I am your host, as always, Dave Hope. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. The first episode of Season 2. We are back and we have a few changes. Uh, if you haven't noticed on my social media presence, we have left the 365 Sportscast website. I just want to go out and say thank you so much to those guys for hosting us for a whole year. We just wanted to move into a different direction. And when I say we, I mean me, because uh, Greg has also left us. Um, this is just uh, the schedule was not conducive to him, and he just uh, he had to leave. But, I mean, that's okay, because... Uh, that opens up the door to special guests and uh, anybody who wants to join the show. It doesn't matter if you have baseball knowledge or not. I am uh, always looking for someone to come on and just do a little guest spot. We can talk about baseball. We can talk about things about baseball. I will provide the story and you could just provide the uh, back and forth with me because that's that's really what I would want is a little back and forth. Uh, speaking of back and forth, today is, uh, what is today's date? Today is February 15th and uh, it doesn't look like anything's going to happen in baseball. Uh, the strike is uh, continuously going and um, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Today's actually the February 7th. I'm recording this on the 7th. So at press time, uh, nothing has happened. But um, because uh, luck just likes to strike me down sometimes, I'm sure by the time February 15th, when this show premieres, uh, the strike will be over and uh, all my words will be just BS. So uh so we are free from network, and I'm doing my own thing. IAP Radio is going to stay. I'm going to uh, keep continuously do these stories, and I just want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, please like, follow, subscribe. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. Just go ahead and just do me a favor. Just let me know that you at least listen to five seconds of an episode because that would be great today i wanted to tell a story that hits close to home for any diehard baseball fan and after the story uh we'll discuss what the repercussions are from it today i'll be talking about the 1994 mlb strike i thought that this story would be great for a season two uh premiere because of the current situation that major league baseball is in so let's start it off. The 1994 MLB strike was the eighth work stoppage in baseball history. It was also the fourth in-season work stoppage in 22 years. The strike in 94 began on August 12th and resulted in the remainder of that season being canceled, including the postseason, and for the very first time since 1904, the World Series was canceled. The reason that there wasn't a World Series in 1904 was actually due to the lack of a formal arrangement in place between the two leagues regarding the standings or the stagings of the World Series. That World Series was actually meant to be the Boston Red Sox, who were the Americans at the time, versus the New York Giants. The Giants were owned by John T. Brush. 
he refused to play against the team from what they considered an inferior league. The criticism from fans and writers caused Brush to reverse course during the offseason and lead an effort to formalize the actual World Series between two leagues, AL and NL. Boston did not make it back in 1905, but the Giants repeated its NL championship and won the 1905 World Series against the Philadelphia Athletics. The Red Sox eventually met the Giants in 1912 in the World Series with the Red Sox winning in eight games, which is weird, but game two ended in a tie. Seems weird to end in a tie. It reminds me of that time when the All-Star game ended in a tie and Bud Sealing's on the sidelines and he's like, uh, I don't know, let's just call the game. The 1994 strike, however, was not about something so simple and easy to fix as just a, I don't want to play you because uh, whatever. On January 18th, 1994, the owners approved a new revenue sharing plan keyed to a salary cap, which required the player's approval. MLB owners collectively proposed the salary cap to their players. Ownership claimed that the small market clubs would fall by the wayside unless teams agreed to share local broadcasting revenues in order to increase equality among the teams and enact the salary cap. Seems all right. The players, though, they opposed this deal. The following day, the owners amended the MLB agreement by giving complete power to the commissioner, Bud Selig, who was actually the acting commissioner at the time on labor negotiations. The dispute was played out from years of hostility and mistrust between the two sides. What really stood in the way of a compromising settlement was the absence of an official commissioner ever since owners forced Faye Vincent to resign in September of 92. Vincent said that the owners have colluded in a signing of free agents, which led to a $280 million theft by Bud Sealing and Jerry Reindorf, which polluted labor relations in baseball and left Donald Furr, executive of the MLBPA, with no trust in Selig. Selig was part of the owner's collusion in 1985 through 1987 when he was the owner and president of the Milwaukee Brewers, resulting in owners paying $280 million in damages to the players. So right off the bat, there is zero trust. On February 11th, 1994, the owners greatly reduced the commissioner's power to act in the best interest of baseball. Owner representative Rich Ravitch officially unveiled the ownership proposal on June 14, 1994. Their proposal would guarantee a record $1 billion in salary and benefits. Ravitch was hired in November of 1991 by the MLB owners as head of their player relation committee, the chief labor negotiation for the owner at an annual salary of $750,000. Although some critics claimed that he was hired as a union buster against the MLPA, the ownership proposal would have forced clubs to fit their payrolls into a more evenly based structure. Salary arbitrations would have been eliminated. Free agency would begin after four years rather than six and owners would have retained the rights to keep a four- or five-year player by matching his 
best offer. Owners claimed that their proposal would raise average salary from $1.2 million in 1994 to $2.6 million by 2001. Don Fur, however, rejected the offer from the owners on July 18th. He believed a salary cap was a way for the owners to clean up their own problems with zero benefits to the players. On July 13th, 1994, Donald first said that if serious negotiations between players and owners did not begin soon, the players would go on strike in September of that year, threatening the postseason. As negotiations continued to heat up, the owners decide to withhold $7.8 million that they were required to pay per previous agreement into the players' pension and benefit plans. The final straw came on June 23rd when Senate Judiciary Committee failed to approve the antitrust legislation by a vote of 10 to 7. On July 28th, the Players Association Executive Board said in August 12th, 1994 as a strike date when that day came the players went ahead with their threat to walk off the job the last game of that baseball season was played on august 11th 1994 now at the time of this strike the montreal expos actually had the best record in baseball with a 74 and 40 record in the nl and the yankees had the best record in the al with 70 and 43 can you imagine an Expos Yankees World Series in 1994? My Red Sox lived in the basement in the Eastern Division that year with a record of 54 and 61. So I would have been all about the Expos winning. Other than a possibility of the Expos being in the World Series in 1994, there was a few other things that happened. Tony Gwynn had a chance to be the first to finish a season over 400 since Ted Williams. He was batting point. 394 before the strike. The strike also cost Matt Williams of the Giants a chance to beat Roger Maris' single season home run record of 61. At the time, Matt Williams was at 43 before August 12th. Carlos Biagra was unable to extend his record of two year streak of 20 home runs, 200 hits, and 100 RBIs by a second baseman. Ken Griffey Jr., who led the AL in, with 40 home runs, Kevin Mitchell of the Cincinnati Reds, Julio Franco of the Chicago White Sox, and Shane Mack of the Minnesota Twins were all hitting 325 in 94. All three opted to play in Japan in 1995. April 2nd, 1994 was the grand opening of Jacobs Field, home of the Cleveland Indians. Neither name is around anymore. Cleveland Indians owner, Richard Jacob directed that all souvenirs being sold at the Indians gift shop carrying the words inaugural season at Jacobs Field be sold at half price. The Colorado Rockies were in their last season at Mile High Stadium with an attendance of 3,281,511 people through 57 home games for an average of 57,570 per game. The team would have had a good chance of drawing over 4.6 million fans in their 81 home games if the season had continued. With the Yankees being in first in the AL, Don Mattingly would have had the best chance of actually making it to the postseason, which would have been the first in his 13-year career. The Yankees had not been in the postseason since 1981. Mattingly would finally reach the playoffs in his first and only time in his playing career in 1995, 
but they were beaten by the Seattle Mariners in the ALDS in five games. One good thing that came out of the 94 strike was that Jeff Bagwell ended up winning the NL MVP even after he broke his hand on August 10th. Bagwell became just the fourth player in NL history to win the award unanimously. On December 5th, Richard Ravitch said that he would step down as negotiator for the owners on December 31st, 1994, but instead resigned on August 6th. 1994. On December 14th, labor talks headed by the federal mediator, William Usury, broke down. The next day, the owners approved a salary cap plan by a vote of 25 to 3, but agreed to delay implementing it so that another round of talks with the players could be held. On December 23rd, 1994, with negotiations at a complete standstill, the owners implemented that salary cap. On January 4th, 1995, five bills aimed at ending the baseball strike were introduced into Congress. The next day, Fur declared that 895 unsigned major league players to be free agents in response to a unilateral contract change made by owners on january 10th arbitrator thomas robert awarded 11 players a total of almost 10 million dollars as a result of collusion charges brought against the owners on january 26th both players and owners were ordered by president bill clinton to resume bargaining and reach an agreement by february february 6th unfortunately clinton's deadline came and went with no resolution of the strike. Just five days earlier, though, the owners agreed to revoke the salary cap and return to the old agreement. It's kind of funny when the president of the United States gets involved and things are so bad between the league that they don't even care. They don't care that the president wants you to play. They're just like, no, you, you don't understand. After the deadline passed with no results, the owners thought it would be a good idea to use replacement players for spring training and regular season games. And this was approved by baseball's executive council on January 13th. Replacement players were reportedly guaranteed $5,000 for reporting to spring training and another $5,000 if they made it to the opening day roster. Bud Selig said that we are committed to playing the 95 season and will do so with the best players willing to play. That doesn't sound like a good idea at all on march 14th the players union announced that it would not settle the strike if replacement players were used in regular season games and if results were not voided sparky anderson who was the manager of the detroit tigers at the time stuck by his men and was put on involuntary leave of absence as he refused to manage replacement players. This replacement player idea hit a roadblock for two teams in the AL. The Toronto Blue Jays could not play games with replacement players or umpires in Ontario due to a labor code amendment passed by the Ontario NDP that prohibited replacement workers. And the Baltimore Orioles owner, Peter Angelo, was a union lawyer and he announced that they will also not be using replacement players. On March 20th, Angelo canceled the remainder of the Orioles' spring training games. The next day, the Maryland House of Delegates approved the legislation 
to bar teams playing at Camden Yards from using replacement players. On March 26th, the MLB announced that the 1995 season would be reduced from 162 games per team to 144 games per team as a result of using replacement players. Now, this strike came at a really bad time for a new TV deal. At the end of the 1993 season, CBS Sports lost the rights to broadcasting baseball games on television. Nationally televised games was taken over by the MLB itself, which in return sold the games as a broker programming to ABC and NBC as part of a joint venture that was referred to as the Baseball Network. Originally, the idea was for the two networks to share primetime games during the week with the two networks alternating coverage between the All-Star Game and the World Series and splitting the division and league championships between them. The agreement was to run for six seasons till the end of 1999, with ABC and NBC airing the World Series and All-Star Game three times a year. The strike resulted in ABC losing out on two weeks of coverage and the World Series and NBC losing out on all of its regular season games. MLB and the local stations lost a combined $595 million in advertising revenue and both networks announced that they would be opting out of the deal after the shortened 95 season. The Fox Network became the new broadcasting partner for MLB in 1996 and has remained as such since. Although NBC stayed on and broadcast only the postseason until the end of 2000. Now, on March 28, 1995, the players voted to return to work if a judge supported the National Labor Relations Board unfair labor practices complaint against the owners which was filed the day before by a vote of 27 to 3 owners supported the use of replacement players but the strike ended when judge Sonia Sotomayor of the United States District Court issued a preliminary injunction against owners on March 31st on April 2nd 1995 the day before the season was scheduled to start with the replacement players the strike came to an official end at 232 days. Judge Sotomayor's decision received support from the panel of the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which denied the owner's request to stay the ruling. As part of the terms of injunction, the players and owners were to be bound to the terms of the expired collective bargaining agreement until a new one could be reached and the start of the season, which was actually postponed by three weeks with teams playing a 144-game season instead of a 162-game season. So, what were the long-term effects of the 94 strike? Well, we all know that a ton of fans gave up on the game and decided never to return. My father was actually part of this group until recently when he finally went back to Fenway with me and my son. If you're thinking to yourself, well, that's only one person... How can that affect the game? During the first days of the 95 season, some fans remained so pissed off at both players and owners 
attendance at the game dropped like crazy as did TV ratings. Both attendance and TV ratings dropped more in 95 than it did during the strike in 81. While a total of 50 million fans had attended 1,600 MLB games during the regular season in 94, which averaged to about 31,000 people per game, a total of 50,416 fans attended 2016 games in 95 during the MLB regular season. That's an average of 25,000 per game, which is a 20% decline from 94 to 95. A few of the fans who showed up demonstrated their frustration by booing the players. The strike was seen as the worst work stoppage in sports history leaving the game in crisis and some fans absolutely angry. Now, here's something funny. Some of the examples of fan protest included three men who wore T-shirts that said greed, jumped onto the Shea Stadium field to a standing ovation and tossed $160 in $1 bills at the players' feet before being restrained by security. As they were walked off the field, the rest of the crowd loudly booed security as the men were taken off the field. In Cincinnati, one fan paid for a plane to fly over Riverfront Stadium that carried the banner reading, Owners and Players, to hell with you. Fans in Pittsburgh disrupted the opening day game between the Montreal Expos and the Pittsburgh Pirates by throwing various objects on the field, causing a 17-minute delay before being warned that the game would be declared a forfeit to the Expos. However, Fans continued to boo straight after that. Now, if you're from Detroit, love your baseball. In Detroit, fans booed and hurled beer bottles, cans, baseballs, cigarette lighters, and even one fan threw a hubcap onto the field, causing a 12... How do you bring a hubcap into the stadium and no one notices? Causing a 12-minute delay while holding up a sign that said, Field of Dreams Greed. And strike owners, owners spelled with a dollar sign, strike owners win, players win, fans lose. Owners and players ending with a dollar sign S. While 50,000 fans showed up for the New York Yankees home opener against the Texas Rangers, it was the smallest opening day crowd at Yankee Stadium since 1990. The MLBPA president, Donald Furr, attended that game, angered many fans who blamed him for ruining their team's postseason chances. And also what would have been Don Mattingly's first postseason. Fans booed Fur and yelled, you ruined the game, in response to him having attended the last game played at Yankee Stadium before the strike, and also booed him as he left the stadium. One fan held up a sign that says, shame on you. Shame, spelt with a dollar sign. These fans are very creative. Donald Fur responded by flipping off the fans. Not really the best way to come at peace. Now, the super long-term impact on the game go as followed. Arguably, the largest impact was, unfortunately, on the Montreal Expos. The strike was considered to be the start of the franchise downfall in Montreal, eventually leading them to become the Washington Nationals. Not only did their dream season get ruined, they were also forced to lower payroll and sell off four of the highest paid stars on that team. Marquise Grissom, Ken Hill, Larry Walker, and John Wheatland, who actually might be getting his own show soon. All in the span of less than a week into spring training. With the strike, 
negatively affecting the fan base, the Expos would unfortunately never recover. The team did actually have some good performances in 96, but they never came close to contending again. The team was purchased by the MLB in 2001 and would eventually be moved to D.C. to become the Nationals after the 2004 season. They, of course, would go on to win the 2019 World Series as the Nationals. One can question the major loss of revenue would lead to the way of the steroid era that we all know and love. The steroid era was from 96 to 2015. Owners will be damned if they're going to lose money. And all it would really cost a player is a lifetime band and them never making it into the Hall of Fame. It's unbelievable how history constantly repeats itself. So that is the 1994 MLB strike. If you like that show, please rate us on Spotify or wherever. Get, just share it. Share it to your, your dear closest friend. Or if you didn't like it, share it to someone you don't like. Just help me out. So I appreciate everybody coming back for season two of IAP Radio. You can also listen to last season of IAP Radio. Just go over to iaprradio.com. And that's where all our links are to our Twitter, our Instagram. I like to do odd baseball facts. I like to do knows. I like to do draft bust of all time I, I just i like uh, i like baseball history just sometimes there's more to the game than just wins a lot so again thank you so much for tuning into this episode i am dave houghton from iap radio if you want to be a guest on this show email me at inapickpod247 at gmail.com and or just slide right into my dms at one of the twitters or instagrams or even on tiktok or whatever we got some great shows coming up this season so uh i hope you enjoy everything please Help me out. Leave a comment. All right. I'm not begging. Just ask. So, all right. So that's it for myAPRadio.com. Thank you so much. We will see you next time. Goodbye.